welcome to Shelter Cove Online. We are so glad that you're joining us today for this sermon. We hope and pray that this message encourages you, that you learn something, that you enjoy it. But more than that, we just pray that God would move in your life, that he would reveal some more of himself to you today. If you would like to respond to this message in any way, you can contact us at sheltercovelive.com or send us a text message at 209-340-3115. Have an amazing rest of your day. Well, good morning, church. Great to be with you all today. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Galatians. We're going to be in chapter 4 today. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. And we've got some little uh, scripture couriers going to run around and and uh, get that to you. Galatians 4, we're going to start in verse 21 today. And if you've been paying attention, you might be thinking, verse 21, what happened to verse 1 through 20? We didn't cover verses 1 through 20 in chapter 4 on a weekend. You know what? You're right. We had a few interruptions in this sermon series, kind of had to restructure, revamp just to stay on schedule. But if you want to go back and watch a message on verse 1 through 20, Pastor Ed did record one and it's available on our website. So you can check that out. But we're going to jump in to verse 21 here. I'm going to take you to about the middle of chapter 5 today, so we've got a lot of ground to cover. Now, you may have also noticed in a sermon series on Galatians that there is a consistent theme that, that we revisit from week to week, and you, it might have occurred to you, uh, are, 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 we, are we ever going to talk about anything other than law and grace? I mean, we keep hitting this theme of, of works versus faith. It just, it just seems a little repetitive. Let me ask you a question. Uh, when you were a kid, did your parents ever have to tell you the same thing more than once? How about your kids? You got to ever repeat yourself to them? Sure you do. You know why? Because repetition is key to communication. We repeat the important things, don't we? And folks, there's nothing more important than understanding that you cannot earn the favor of God. And even if we say, oh, we believe that. Yeah, absolutely. It's real easy to slip into that old mindset. And so Paul is hammering this uh, just like we would drill something into our kid's head by, by harping on it, repeating it over and over and over. And just uh, speaking of parenting, I've got four kids, and they, they run the spectrum in terms of age. I've got them kindergarten to high school. And, uh, but I can remember what it was like expecting our first child. I, I remember a guy coming up to me saying, hey, I heard you guys are expecting your first. And I said, yeah. He goes, Congratulations. Well, thank you very much. He said, but you know, one child does not qualify you as a parent. And I, I didn't know how to take that. And he went on, he was kind of joking, but he explained his point. He said, you know, it, it's, it's just, it's an easy job. When you come home, you got one child and there's something broken in the house, you know who did it, you know? But you add a kid, you add two, three, four, then your job gets exponentially harder. You, you got to do a little detective work. You got to figure out, who did what and who, who talked who into what? And then you, you can't discipline them all the same way. You know, you have to discipline and, 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 and uh, instruct according to the role they played in the incident. It's just, and he's right. And I remember growing up, that's how it was. When I was in fifth grade, we moved to South Dakota. And uh, my brother is four years younger than me. And I remember there was, there was one day, we lived out in the country, and, and my brother and I were playing in the backyard, and my parents came out. They said, boys, something urgent's come up. we got to go into, the, into town, uh, and uh, we're going to be gone a little bit. Are you okay to play in the backyard while we're gone? We said, sure. And, uh, and so they left. They said, we'll be back. They left. And so my brother and I continued to play in the backyard, and pretty soon I felt the call of nature. 
I had to go to the bathroom. And so I went to the house, and lo and behold, it was locked up. My parents had inadvertently locked us out of the house. Now, why was this a problem? Because of the nature of my emergency. All right, let's just say it was the second of two numbers that I could reference for you, okay? This was not a use the bushes kind of situation. And so I had to get into the house. I tried the front door, I tried the side door, I tried the sliding door, nothing. I even tried the back door that led to the basement that we never use, that door, and it was locked. And I'm thinking, what am I going to do? i got to get in this house. And I looked at the door that led to the basement, and there was a window in the middle of that door, a little pane window in the middle of the door. And I had an idea. And I went to my younger brother. I said, I said, Micah, do you have to go to the bathroom? And he said, no. I said, are you sure? I mean, you drank that big cup of Kool-Aid at lunch. Are you sure you don't have to go? He's like, oh, yeah. You know, I do have to go to the bathroom. I go, well, what are you going to do? The house is all locked up. You can't get in. You can't get in. What are you going to do? He goes, I don't know. The house is locked up. I go, yeah. He goes, but I have to go to the bathroom. I go, I know. You know what you could do? No, oh, you can't do that. What? What? What can I do? Well, you know, if you really have to go, if it's an emergency, I suppose you could, you could break the window in that door that leads to the basement. He goes, I can't do that. I go, sure you can. He goes, I'll get in trouble. I said, well, there's already a crack in the window, and mom and dad never used that door. They probably wouldn't even notice. He goes, well, how would I break the glass? I go, well, I'm just, I'm just spitballing here, but maybe you could use this rock. And I talked my little brother into throwing a rock through that window, and we reached and unlocked the door. We went in. He did his business. I did mine. And in no time flat, we grabbed a snack and a Capri Sun, and we're watching cartoons. My parents later come home. My mom goes down to do laundry in the basement. She notices the broken window. She says, boys, who broke this window? I said, mom, I, I got to tell you, it was Micah. He, he threw a rock and you know why? Because he had to go to the bathroom. And she turns her anger upon my little brother at that point. But she stops because she's savvy. This woman's got the nose of a bloodhound. She starts asking questions. He starts talking. And in no time, she has identified who is the deceived and who is the deceiver. And she deals with us accordingly. And sometimes parents have to do that, right? They have to identify what the situation is. Who is responsible for what? And, and that's what Paul is doing. Paul is kind of a parent to this church. He's in authority, and he something has come up. There's a heresy that has arisen. Someone has thrown a rock through the pure glass of the gospel, and they've shattered it. And Paul is identifying what the parties are in that act. Who is deceived? Who is the deceiver? And who is just sitting around minding their own business? And he's going to deal with it accordingly. And that's what we're going to talk about. So we got a lot to jump into, but let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I ask your blessing upon our time today as we look at Paul's method for stomping out heresy, for dealing with confusion in the church. May we learn from this method. May we learn from the truth of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so take a look at your notes here. Here's Paul's method of properly dealing with confusion. And the first thing he does, number one, he's going to correct the deceived. Paul cares deeply about these people. They, they, they have been duped. They are not condemned, they are salvageable, and he's going to lovingly rebuke them. Look at verse 21. He says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? 
He's just asking them a, a question to get them to think about this. And he's going to proceed here and tell them a story. Sometimes when you communicate, it's effective to tell a story. And he's going to tell them a story about two boys, two sons, two brothers with different mothers. And in the Old Testament, there are some notable sets of brothers, and they're all marked by conflict. Now, we remember Cain and Abel. And uh, both Cain and Abel presented a sacrifice to God. And, and you recall that God accepted Abel's sacrifice because it was what God had asked for. He did not accept Cain's sacrifice because Cain's was just the work of his own hands. It was not in accordance with God's design for sacrifice. It represented his own human uh, ingenuity and work. And so God rejected that. And so there was conflict between those brothers. So great was that conflict that one killed the other. And then there was Jacob and Esau. And here we have Jacob who values the things of God. He values the eternal things and, and the inheritance of the promise that God made to Abraham, his grandfather. On the other hand, Isaac, excuse me, e Esau, couldn't care less about that stuff. He doesn't care about eternal things. He likes man-made things. He likes temporary things. He's the firstborn, but he'd just as soon trade away his birthright for a bowl of soup. And he does. And so there's a conflict between those brothers, one rejected, one accepted. And now Paul is going to tell us about another set of brothers. Look at verse 22. He says, for it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. And the names of these two boys are Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael and Isaac are the sons of Abraham. And it's Abraham that God made a promise to. He told Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of many nations, or of a great nation. I'm going to make you the father of, of, of a countless descendants. They're going to number like the stars. They're going to number like the grains of sand on the seashore. And there's going to be a single descendant, the Christ. And through that descendant, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. But your, your descendants will be vast. There's one problem. Abraham's like 100 years old. Sarah is like 80 years old. How can you be the father of many when you can't even bear children, right? Things are not working like they used to work. And so no one would expect that Sarah is going to conceive. And in fact, Sarah didn't really expect that she was going to conceive at first. And so she has an idea. She says, Abraham, I know how this promise can be fulfilled. Obviously, I'm not going to be able to have children. So what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to sleep with my handmaid, Hagar. You're going to have to have sex with her and get her pregnant, and that will fulfill the promise. And Abraham thought about this for 0.5 seconds and said, I can do that. And so he did. And she conceived. This handmaid had a son, Ishmael. Now, did God accept Ishmael? He did not. Ishmael was not the child of promise because it was not God's design. God's design was Sarah will conceive supernaturally, and it will be through this line that I will fulfill my promise. And he proceeds to allow Sarah to have a child, and that child's name is Isaac. And Isaac is the child of promise. And so there is a rejected son and an accepted son conflict, you see. And now what Paul is going to do in, in the sub point here is he's going to put the conflict in context. Take a look at verse 24. He says, now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. 
She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. You see what he's doing here? These women represent two covenants. What were the two dominant covenants at this point? We've been talking about them this whole time. Law, grace, okay? And he's saying that Hagar is representative of the covenant of law. He says she's Mount Sinai. What happened at Mount Sinai? Well, that's where Moses came down with the Ten Commandments. That was at Mount Sinai. And so she clearly represents a covenant of works. Ishmael was the product of their human ingenuity. It was not God's design. It was not something that God gave. It's something they came up with. And so he represents human works. And Paul says that she corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. Uh, The present Jerusalem, this is the Jerusalem of Paul's day. Who is in Jerusalem? That would be the religious elites. They hate Paul. They hate Christ. They had Christ killed. They had Stephen killed. They had James killed. They tried to kill Peter. They've tried to kill Paul. They hate everything those guys stand for because the gospel that is presented by them says to the religious elites, you are not the true children of God. You're children of law. You're children of work. And so just like Ishmael doesn't like Isaac because in God's eyes, Isaac is the only true child. If you remember, God told Abraham when he was instructed to sacrifice Isaac, he says, I want you to take your only son. Boy, that must have stung Ishmael. Only son? What am I, chopped liver over here? No, you're not chopped liver, but you're not the true child of promise. It's nothing personal. It wasn't your fault that you were born, okay? You're just not born to fulfill the promise of God. God had mercy on Ishmael. God provided for Ishmael in the wilderness. There would be an inheritance for Ishmael outside of the land, but he would not figure into God's promise. And so there is a division between Ishmael and Isaac, and there is a division today, Paul says, between the descendants of Ishmael and Isaac. Who is descended from Isaac? That would be the Jews. Who is descended from Ishmael? That would be the Arabs. Hey, is there any animosity between those two people groups today? I think so. And what Paul is saying is, those in Jerusalem correspond to the line of Ishmael. What's he saying? He's saying, hey, you religious uh, Jews of of Jerusalem, you are Ishmaelites. You're, You're the Arabs that you hate. I'm sure that would have gone over real well with those guys. But his point is, there's no difference. He was the product of work and humanness. You are claiming to justify yourselves by your work and humanness. But he says in verse 26, but the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. See, there's, there's a spiritual Jerusalem and there's a physical Jerusalem. And we are born of the spirit, Paul says. What's born of spirit is spirit. What's born of flesh is flesh. We're not slaves. We're free. What did the law do? The law, we, we learned this a few cap, uh, passages ago, the law enslaves people. The law shuts us up in, in, in prison. Hagar was a slave. She gave birth to a slave child. So just like Hagar produced a slave child, the law, Paul says, produces an enslaved people. And that's not us. We're a free people. And he goes on and he says, for it is written, verse 27, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth the cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate will be more than those of the one who has a husband. And here he's quoting from the book of Isaiah. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah, he was talking, Isaiah was talking about a future kingdom 
where the Messiah is going to come back. He's going to reign in person on the earth. And in that kingdom will be countless descendants of a barren woman. Which barren woman? Sarah. The one who was desolate will have more descendants than the one who had a husband, is what Isaiah said. And there will be vast, countless descendants of Sarah that populate that future coming kingdom. And you want to know something? They're not all going to be Jews. Because Paul says in verse 28, he says, Now you brothers, who's he he writing to? The Galatians. Are the Galatians Jews? No, they're Gentiles. He says, You brothers, like Isaac are children of promise. You're children of promise like you're Gentiles, but you are like Isaac. You are children of promise. We who are not of the race of Israel, by faith in Christ, we are grafted in in terms of the blessing that would come through Jesus to all the nations of the earth. And we are children not of law, but of promise. Okay? And we are united by faith with other believers around the world. Anyone who names the name of Christ, we are united with them. There are Christians all over this world. They're here. They're in Russia. They're in Bosnia. They're in Uganda. They're in Cambodia. They're in Brazil. They're in Iceland. There's even Christians in San Francisco. And so we are united. And Paul goes on, he says in verse 29, but just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. He says there's a conflict now, and it's reflective of the conflict then. Isaac was persecuted by Ishmael. In Genesis 21, it says sometime after Isaac's birth, there was a, what's called a weaning feast And that's when they celebrate uh, the transition from infancy to childhood. And so Isaac was becoming, in their eyes, a child, not not an infant. He was probably two or something like that. And it says that Ishmael was there and he was laughing. And the the word implies he was mocking Isaac. Isaac's just this little toddler and and Ishmael's like 13. And he was just basically saying, you're you're the chosen one? You're a nothing. You're nothing. I've I've been here. I've been here all this time. You just got here. Who do you think you are? You're, you're, your mom is old and wrinkly and mine is young and pretty, okay? You're a nothing. And he mocked him. And you cannot have two children like that in the same camp. They cannot coexist. It's like dogs and cats. One is a child of legalism. One is a child of promise. And Paul is saying the person who is of the flesh and works cannot coexist in God's church with the child of faith and promise. Doesn't work. And in verse 30, he says, but what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. You know who he's quoting there? He's quoting from Genesis the words of Sarah. Because Sarah heard the mockery of Ishmael, and she said, oh, no, you didn't. You're not going to mock my boy. Be gone. Abraham, I want him out. And Hagar and Ishmael had to leave. They could not coexist in Abraham's camp because they were of different philosophies. And so the fact is, in God's church, we are a church of Isaacs who believe by faith. You cannot have someone come into God's church where faith is taught and then begin to teach works and have that exist properly. doesn't work. You have to cast out the Ishmael spirit from the church. 
And Paul wraps this up in verse 31. He says, so brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. So he has, he has corrected the deceived. And now here's what he's going to do. He's going to challenge the believing. He's going to challenge the believing. Look at verse 1. He says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. For freedom. Uh, this is one of the greatest declarations in the entire word of God. This is a major shift. The Jews had no concept of freedom because they had so manipulated and distorted the law and they were enslaved by it. And this is such a profound statement to hear. For freedom you have been set free. Now we'd love to stop right there. We'd love to say, great, that's a great ending to the book of Galatians. Let's just stop right there. You're free, you're saved, you're forgiven, uh, you're covered. Christ lived a sinless life. He died in your place and his righteousness by faith is now imputed to you. And so it's not dependent on you because he did all the work. You're free. Is that true? Absolutely, it's true. But does Paul stop there? No. Look at the next thing he says. Immediately, he says, it's for freedom you've been set free. And then he says, stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. See, he makes a statement that we are free. And then he gives us a command to obey. Wait a minute. I thought freedom was the opposite of works. Well, it is if you're depending on works for salvation. But just because you're free, are you not under the authority of Christ? Are you not responsible to do that which he commands? And so what we have to do here, define freedom properly. Define freedom properly. What are you set free for? You are set free to obey the way God intended for you to obey. You don't just live however you want because you've been forgiven. Here's the deal. You're not earning anything. You are obeying because you are now empowered by Christ to obey as he designed. If you didn't have Christ, you could not obey in a way that was pleasing to God. And that is what the law does. When you're under the law, you are, you are in bondage to sin. You are burdened by sin. You have this relentless guilt. You have an accusing conscience. You have a tyranny of your transgression. You've got this pressure and frustration of constantly trying to be something you're not. And now you're not something you're not. You are something that he says you are. You're a child of the God. You're, you're a, a righteous child of a righteous God. And now you can do what you're being asked to do in a way that you never could before. And the second sub point here is we've got to recognize true authority. Recognize true authority. He says in verse two, look, I, Paul, say to you, he's saying, look, it's me. Hey, listen, it's Paul here. Remember me? I'm the apostle. What are you listening to those guys for? Are they apostles? He's putting the, he's playing the apostolic card here. He's saying, I say that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. If, if you are embracing works as a means of salvation, you have fallen away from what you have been taught. And we see that phrase fallen away, and it kind of freaks us out because we, we, we think that might mean that we're, we're going to lose salvation. Can you lose your salvation? That is not what this is talking about. I've taught on Hebrews 6 before, which says uh, it's impossible if you've tasted the heavenly gift, if, you've, uh, if you have uh, uh, shared in the Holy Spirit, you've tasted the goodness of the Word of God, if you fall away, 
It's impossible to be brought back to repentance. And what that is talking about, it's talking about individuals who have heard the gospel. They've been immersed in a culture where the gospel is taught. Uh, they have understood it. They have embraced it in a, in a cultural sense, in an intellectual sense, in an emotional sense, but it has never taken root on a spiritual level in their life. And these people who are just pretending in a Christian environment, they, they end up walking away. And we've seen all these deconstruction stories over the last few years. These Christians in the public eye who, who abandon the faith. Listen to me. No true Christian will ever abandon Christ. You hear me? No true Christian walks away from Christ. That does not happen. How do you know, Scott? Because First John says, they went out from us because they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. When God saves you, he seals you, all right? And so what is Paul saying? He's saying don't drift from what you have been taught. Don't question in the dark what you have received in the light. You turn to him and him alone. Because if you, if you contemplate the works of God as, as somehow being a part of uh, uh, or excuse me, the work of man is somehow being a part of your faith as a means of salvation. The whole promise is negated. And we've tried to illustrate that in so many ways in this series. Here's, here's another. My wife's love language is frozen yogurt. Any sisters share that love language in here? Okay. All right. All right. So if I want to score points with Deanna, I will stop by yogurt mill on the way home and I'll pick up a minimum of two styrofoam containers of Froyo, and one of them will be cheesecake, okay? Uh, so last week I stopped by, I got a couple of those containers, and one was cheesecake, and the other I think was, I don't know, pumpkin, because, you know, it's the season, and, you know, I'm married to a white woman. And so I brought home the pumpkin Froyo, all right? And, uh, and she, she got it out, she enjoyed some of that, put it back in the freezer. A few days later, she's filling the, she's filling the call again. And she gets it out, and she puts some in a bowl, gets a spoon, takes a bite, and there is this look of total disgust on her face. I said, what's wrong? She goes, try this. And I took a bite. The best I can guess is that the container was open somehow, and the froyo had absorbed all the, the smells and flavors of the freezer. And so amid the pumpkin taste, there was a hint of taquito, okay? <laughs> now, just a little. It was just barely there, but it was, you could notice it. But this was no longer up to Deanna's standards, you understand. It was trash now. This is trash. Folks, God is not interested in your pathetic taquito-tinged works to add to his perfect work that he supplied on the cross. It doesn't work. And Paul says in verse 5, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await the hope of righteousness. We await the hope. I want you to notice the change in pronouns. We ourselves. He's talking to Christians. He's including himself. He, we wait for it. We're not, we're not, uh, we're not uh, uh, um, just hoping it comes along. It, we're waiting for it. We're anticipating it by faith. Faith, what is that? That is the... Uh, operation of your present life in accordance with the fulfillment of a promise that is yet future. And so he says in verse 6, for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Works don't count for any, not for salvation. You remember the thief on the cross? He said, remember me when you come into your kingdom? 
Did he have to do any works to inherit that kingdom? I, I, I don't think so. He was never going to leave that cross alive. He said, remember me. Christ said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. It's faith. It's faith. But Paul says, it's only faith, what? Working through love. I love that turn of phrase. It's faith working through love. It's not you working now. It's faith working in you through love. That's what the difference is. We, there's a proper perspective on work now. It's not my work. It's the work of the faith that is in me manifesting through love. So Paul has corrected the deceived. He has challenged. He has upped the game for the believing. And now he's going to condemn the deceivers. Look at verse 7. He says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? See, Paul is now angry. He knows somebody has gotten in here and messed this all up. These Gentiles did not come up with this works philosophy on their own. They didn't know about all that. They, they were Gentiles. They did not grow up under the Mosaic law. There were some Judaizers that came in here and tainted this, and he's ready to name names and call them out. He says, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. And, and they're sabotaging this, and he is angry about that. He's as angry as God was at the serpent in the garden. And, and you remember what the serpent did in the garden? The serpent said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any of the tree in the garden? You see what he did? He misrepresented the word of God. He distorted. He called it into question. That's what these Judaizers are doing. They're saying, did Paul really tell you this? Or maybe, you know, you misheard Paul. Or Paul, maybe Paul left out some important stuff. In the garden, the serpent said, oh, you will not surely die. You will not surely die. Saying, there's no consequences for sin. These Judaizers are saying, oh, no, no, no. Your, your human works, those are good enough. That, that, that's how you obtain salvation. In the garden, the serpent said, oh, no, God knows you'll be like him, knowing both good and evil, which was true. But he wrapped the lie in the truth to make it difficult to discern. These Judaizers are doing the same. They're talking about something good. God wants you to do good works. That's true. But the lie is that you can get into heaven by your good works. And Paul says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. The Jews saw leaven as a representative of sin. Of sin. And he says, a little bit of this, a little bit of this that taints the doctrine of grace that's going to taint the whole thing. The whole gospel is now tainted. It's like a cancer. It's like a virus. Grace is just one doctrine, but it is the doctrine. You take down the doctrine of grace, it's heresy. It's heresy. There's nothing like grace in any world religion. There's no other, other world religion that has any concept remotely like grace. It is utterly unique to true Christianity. The Jews didn't understand it because they distorted the law. Muslims don't understand grace. God is a God of wrath. you got to obey the five pillars. Uh, Buddhists, grace? What do you, what's grace? What do you need grace for? There's no heaven anyway. So, you, you know, you just gotta, you just got to follow the eightfold path, you know? Uh, Hindus, grace? No, you rack up good karma, you come back on a higher plane. Something like that. Even in, in Catholicism, there's a misunderstanding of grace. They say it's grace plus. So there is only one thing that separates true Christianity from all the other isms and asms and spasms of the world that all lead to hell. 
But Paul says in verse 10, he says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. He's saying, I was there. I saw you convert. I saw you come to faith. I know your faith was true. You're questioning things now. We do that when we are in the dark, but I'm going to set you straight, and I know you will not deviate from the path. That's a case for eternal security. But he says, as for those who deceived you, look at verse, uh, the same verse. He says, and the one who is troubling, you will bear the penalty. Whoever he is, he's going to bear the penalty, and that penalty will be severe. And this is the sub-point. You've got to emphasize the consequences of false teaching. God takes this stuff very seriously. Just like God told the serpent, you're going to eat dust. You're going to go on your belly. I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, and her seed, Christ, will crush your head. That's the consequences for deception. Jesus said... In Matthew 18, whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, it would be better to have a millstone put around their neck and they'd be dropped in the sea. Better that than face me. Hell's going to be hot for false teachers. Paul says in verse 11, but if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? What, what he's doing here, he's addressing an allegation that, that they're making about him. They're saying, you know, Paul, Paul preaches circumcision. Paul preaches law, that you're saved by the law. What are they talking about? They're talking about how Paul met a guy named Timothy. Timothy's father was a Gentile. His mother was a Jew. Timothy was a Christian. He was not circumcised. And Paul had him be circumcised. Why? Not to cave to Judaizers. He had him be circumcised so that there would not be an obstacle for him to go in and preach the gospel to the Jews. He was removing an obstacle so that they wouldn't assume he was a pagan and want nothing to do with him. This way he had an inroads for the gospel. This is an I've become all things to all people so that I can win them kind of mentality. He's saying, they're lying about me. That's not why I had, had that happen. He's saying, in that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. And his point is, if I were teaching circumcision, why are they offended? Why are they offended by the cross? I'll tell you why they're offended by the cross. They would have accepted the message of a crucified Messiah as long as the gospel included adherence to the law. They would have swallowed that. But here's the problem. The cross removes the law. It fulfills the law. So we don't need to be under it anymore. And that is the true offense. That's why these Judaizers are so incensed. And the way that Paul closes here, I'm going I'm to I'm say this, you have never heard a sermon that closes with a verse like this, okay? I can pretty much guarantee that. Look at verse 12. He says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Wow. That's hardcore. Sometimes people think I'm a little abrasive. <laughs> I got nothing on Paul. Paul's saying, these guys are so obsessed with circumcision Maybe that knife ought to slip a little. Whew. What's he really saying here? Here's your subpoint. Identify works-based salvation as what it is. Paganism. You see, Galatia was near a region where they, they worshiped the pagan god uh, goddess uh, Sibele. And the, the worshipers and the priests of Sibele practiced castration as a, as a mode of worship. They self-mutilated as an expression of worship. And what Paul is saying, he's saying, he wants to shock the Galatians. He's saying, if you accept circumcision, the Mosaic rituals, heck, any kind of works-based philosophy, any kind of legalism, if that's your means, you might as well castrate yourself because you are basically a pagan. 
Just go, go full bore. Do the whole enchilada. There's no difference between you and those mutilators up there because you're worshiping a false god. It's the, it's the false god of works. It's paganism. And I can't think of a, a more stunning ending to this case. And this is why he wants to make this point. Sometimes it's real easy just to talk about the positives. Grace, faith, salvation uh, by belief in Christ. Sometimes it's important to look at the inverse of that and talk about the severity of it. Because if people don't know they're in error, they cannot be rescued from error. Unless you embrace the true gospel and understand the severity of the false gospel, you will never be able to please Christ the way God intended for you to. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the awesomeness of your word, the challenging nature of it, God. What a blessing. Go with all of these people that are here today, and we give you honor and glory in Christ's name. Amen.